From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why efforts to curb plastic waste are failing, the ROI of companies investing in communities, Paul Pullman on courageous leadership, and how Joe Biden can be the president for a sustainable private sector. It's the White House Effect, this week on 350. It's February 19th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Shoveling her way through the snow to her microphone <laughs> in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. You're not kidding. Boy, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Snow. You and 73% of the United States of America. <laughs> I mean, that was it, literally. That was the statistic of the oh, map my that goodness. was shown. Mm-hmm. Uh, 73% was under, I think, I think it's the most... Uh, the highest percentage of of the country having snow on the ground, maybe ever or certainly in a long, long time. Wow, so that's that's something. Wow. Um, hey, Joel. Yes. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Joel. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Joel. Sure. It's your birthday. It is today, February 19th. <laughs> it is. It, thank you so much. That was lovely. And the only reason I'll let you finish that, Heather, and not cut you off, uh, which of course every fiber in my body wanted to do is because you are such an accomplished acapella singer. That was a treat. Thank you. Hey. I have a, I have a bigger one coming up, uh, next February 19th. One of them, mm-hmm. there's speed limit birthdays, although we're quickly, get, quickly mm-hmm. getting out of the uh, legal speed limit realm, but, uh, <laughs> Aye. So, uh that's a year ahead. Let's mm-hmm. go to the weekend review. Well, I don't even know how to come out of that, but let's get into the incredibly sexy topic of plastic waste. Uh, I mean, this is an uh, evergreen topic, sadly, but we had, the, uh, I just think, an amazing piece by Terry Yossi, who writes the Values Proposition column, a former president and CEO of the World Environment Center and a longtime uh, creature of Washington, let's say, uh, who took a look at the plastic waste issue from uh, sort of the systemic view, but also at, at, at also at the ground level of, of of what the problem is and what needs to happen. You know what's not working. The how we conceive of the plastic waste problem as as individual components and not a systemic view. The business model in which uh, uh, plastics production is is based. Uh, the, the multiple agendas and competing narratives of, of the think tanks, foundations, academics, NGOs, private sector and government and on and on. And I just, and then what, what do the solutions look like? He really broke it down in a way that, gosh, I wish more and more of articles that we'd pr- reproduce, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, broke things down as well as Terry did in this piece. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And I, I, one of the things I really empathized with him about was the the sort of 
myriad of of initiatives that are focused on this because I, as a journalist, I've often felt like so many fragmented initiatives have caused there to be a, a lack of cooperation, right? So there's just so much going on all over the place that you can't really focus on the bigger, larger issue. And the the thing that I really loved about one of his solutions was the um, the idea of bridging them, right? So not just from a initiatives point of view, like, okay, people get your act together, talk to each other, work together on these things, but also um, the governance of them. So that was one of the things I really uh, appreciated his, his uh, approach, thinking about a global commitment to reduce plastic waste and how you should have multiple nations and communities and NGOs represented sort of at the table in a global point of view, because everything gets so um, well, I mean, frankly, nationalistic, right? Every country has its own waste streams and and ways of dealing with them, and where are we going to put this? And but you know, I just for me, I think one of the most sort of ahas was, hey, you know, like we're all in this together, and we we need to get a better grip on on working across across those boundaries and 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 borders. Right, and it's not just the geopolitical part because even if you look at what's going on. Outside of, of the, the public sector, um, you have the, all the different uh, circulate capital. They have an ocean fund, and they're investing in, in a number of different initiatives uh, in in India and, and Southeast Asia to uh, uh, buttress or, in some cases, create fully the uh, re- recycling infrastructure. You've got the Alliance uh, and Plastic Waste, which is a bunch of brands in the chemical industry, um, which is working in nine countries and and then all the brands that have made all these commitments. And, you know, Terry points out that uh, these and other initiatives will achieve some progress, but they're all working in compartmentalized aspects of an expanding crisis with limited funding. And and even if successful, will require many years to reach market scale, let alone actually make a dent in the problem. So um, I, I do think, you know, no surprise here because it, it it's true for pretty much every topic we talk about uh, that the systemic view is missing and with a lot of individual siloed and compartmentalized uh, approaches to solving these things. And uh, it's just not working. We are losing the, the battle here, or as Terry says in the headline, why the efforts to curb plastic waste are failing. Yep, absolutely. So not to be too, too much of a downer, but I think it is a, a sobering piece, but it's also, there's so many really good ideas in here. I, I highly encourage a read. Yeah, and it, it requires big, systemic, and you know bold, audacious thinking. And that brings us to the other story that we can talk about, which is uh, Bill Gates. Mr. Gates spoke at Green Biz 21 last week, and our senior editor, Elsa Wenzel, uh, wrote a piece about it. And uh, I don't know, what did you think of, of Bill's presentation? So I guess having see, seen him talk many times as a technology journalist and having inter- having had the privilege of interviewing him several times, um, there wasn't anything for me that was really surprising because he's always been focused on innovation as a solution to problem, right? Innovation that eliminates a premium for the thing, right? So in the case of of the, the computing industry, it was how do you get these personal computers to be at a price point that could be on every desktop and could be 
you know, available to everyone. And so he, that was what he set out to accomplish with Microsoft. And lo and behold, he kind of did it. Um, so his philosophy about eliminating what he calls the green premium, like the 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 cost of sustainable products and services. I love it. I'm not not surprised by it. Um, and it's also really, of course, the the focus on um, his his ventures through Breakthrough um, Energy Ventures, which is the organization that he he's part of, um, along with quite a few other uh, people with a lot of money. I can't remember all of the participants right now. Perhaps you can. Uh, it's a Breakthrough Energy Coalition. I, I apologize. I, I misspoke with the name. But uh, Richard Branson's part of it, um, Jeff Bezos, et cetera. So I suppose for, for me, it wasn't um, all that surprising, his thesis. What, what did surprise me were, were two things. One were his sort of uh, personal revelation on how he, he saw this on the ground through his foundation with, with visits to places like Africa. And he really started seeing the effects of climate change and that sort of personally made him a champion of this. And I also, in in his uh, remarks, one of the things that I really appreciated was he like he, he praised activists. He, he mentioned activists and how what the important role they played, which you don't normally hear from uh, someone like a you know, a business guy like Bill Gates. But I just, I really, I think I, I really appreciated that the most. What about you? Um, what, what struck you? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it was just great having him participate. And, you know, I know I, I know a lot of my uh, 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 friends and a lot of our colleagues, you know, just love the, his opening line, which is, welcome to Green Biz 21. <laughs> you know, just having Bill Gates say that sounds <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. Fun. But I mean, that's that's obviously my superficial answer. Look, he he's he's a he's a great thinker and brings great attention to anything that he that he uh, leans into, and he's leaning into uh, a lot of uh, of big ideas. Uh, you know, I think you know, I guess, I, and I respect the, the heck out of him for for doing that. I think the challenge is that. Not everything is a technology fix. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and so many of the things that we need to do are uh, involve policy, involve personal change, involves you know rethinking business models, involves culture change inside organizations, uh, societal wherewithal, you know, to to take on big challenges. Anyway. Uh, the question is where you know which which of these is is uh, do we need more and which do we need first so, you know and we need everything yes. so these technologies <laughs> do not exist in a vacuum um, uh, but I think that's going to be the that's the critical part that when I hear him I find it inspiring and and look I'm a, I love technology and and I probably you know am somewhat guilty of rely, relying too much on technology to fix. Uh, the great challenges we have. Our whole Verge conference and the Verge conferences now that we're developing around that are based largely on that premise, although we do put an increasing uh, emphasis on the people, uh, human factor and all of that and the and the social equity piece of all that. So I guess, you know, I mean, I know he gets that because he's he's all about, you know, how do you bring power to the billion people who don't have it? How do you bring toilets to the uh, billion people who don't have them? You know, the, how do you improve lives and deploy technology to do that? So I, I get that he gets that, but it's just, there's always more to it than, than he's talking about. So, but, you know, 
he can he, the fact that he's bringing attention to this uh the way he's brought attention to uh ending uh, malaria and and tuberculosis and and other infectious diseases is really uh, important and i uh, and i really respect the heck out of him for that yeah absolutely thank you bill So, Heather, for one more week, we've got some highlights from Green Biz 21. Uh, What have you got queued up for us? Yes. Okay. So here we go. The first highlight is from Kimberly Lewis, former senior vice president for the U.S. Green Building Council and evangelist for JEDI issues. That's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. The highlight focuses on why advancing equity should start with a serious examination of corporate culture. And here's Kimberly. Folks are beginning to understand that the call, the performative call to support, I support Black Lives Matter, we support racial justice, immediately people pivot to look at your governance structure. What does your leadership look like? What does organizational balancing look like from them? Do they see these communities reflected? And all of a sudden there's this rush, we need to recruit, we need to recruit. As we build upon this journey, check your culture first. What I know in leading Green Build for 18 years, I would bring the leaders every year as speakers. But why wouldn't they stay? And I think that's what we need to consider. You can recruit. You can bring leaders to the table. And there's so much knowledge and they're already doing amazing, great things that we're not leveraging. It's a missed opportunity. But when we understand and we don't see that exponential growth again that we've seen in other market transformation moments, check your culture. What are you inviting folks into? Why should they come to us? What I know even in my faith world, this last year said, we're not in the building anymore. You're no longer can wait for people to come to you. How are we making it available to reach others in this space? Check your culture. Make sure as you're recruiting, it's not that one checkoff seat. They need to see a strategic vision for how you're building and how you're sharing the power, how are you sharing the work? What is the vision for how they work? And is it amplified with support as well? So I say people come and they leave because they don't see an authentic, long-term strategic vision that is saying we want to leverage and build together. The second highlight, Joel, is from your conversation with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, and now the co-founder and chairman of Imagine, the organization and foundation concerned with helping leaders mobilize, usually collectively, on climate action. Here he speaks on the new face of leadership. Well, let me first say that um, we're short of leaders and trees. It is very clear that if you see the efforts tenure of a CEO being less than four and a half years, the average lifetime of a publicly traded company now being less than 17 years, Uh, many of the boards not having the competencies or the fair representation of what you need to deal with these problems from climate competency to racial diversity or gender. So I think the door is wide open for these new leaders to walk in, for this new generation of leaders 
actually to take a seat at the table or in many cases take the table. And the people that are going to be successful, I believe, are these leaders that are first and foremost systemic thinkers. It's not easy what we need to attack. These issues need to be solved at different levels than we've created. And we haven't trained people on that. If you really look at basically the business community that uh, that we're talking to and the MBA programs until now, it was Milton Friedman on steroids. We haven't created these multidisciplinary leaders. We need leaders now that are more purpose-driven, leaders that can work in partnership, leaders that can think intergenerational, leaders that operate with a high level of humanity and humility, leaders above all that know that it's not about themselves, that by investing in others, they will end up being better off themselves as well. But but it takes a courage, uh, it takes humility, uh, it requires us to have a high level of humanity, if you want to, to rebuild that trust, to build off that truth that is needed to restore and repair these relationships, and frankly, to get to these deeper partnerships that we badly need. Clip number three comes from Martina Chung, president of S&P Global Market Intelligence. I captured her thoughts on a topic that is always a source of fascination for the green biz community, the changing world of disclosure, and why it will be a few years before there's one framework. One of the themes that we're watching very closely in uh, in the both uh, with the voluntary standard setters as well as with regulators and, and policymakers is a convergence uh, around uh, certain themes. Uh, so we have seen, uh, for example, uh, SASB merging with IRRC. Uh, we see further convergence in the voluntary standard setters, which will really help uh, to bring a lot of those metrics and frameworks uh, together. Uh, in addition, uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, regulators actually embracing uh, the green taxonomy that was developed out of the EU that looks at uh, you know, what activities can be considered green. For example, if you're an investor looking at your portfolio, uh, and uh, we also see a lot of the um, the, the major uh, financial uh, policymakers like the European Central Bank, NGFS, et cetera, looking at climate risk, uh, you know, putting their uh, support behind frameworks such as the Task Force and Climate Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD. So we're at a moment where there's um, some convergence and, and coalescence. Uh, the IFRS uh, work is critical. The CFO has to come in. Uh, stage right and and actually take a lot of the implications um, of this and and figure out how does that impact the long term planning of a company how does it impact uh, you know the risk that the company faces of disruption uh, or damage to physical assets for example uh, and so the IFRS uh, standards will I think be a very important catalyst uh, for further standardization uh, as even as we begin to see this convergence more and more in, in uh, what's out there today. We have a point of view, I would say, uh, that is, uh, you know, fairly consistent with uh, a number of other providers in the market that uh, we first and foremost prioritize data that is uh, needed to actually demonstrate financial materiality or to measure uh, the uh, the financial impact of some of these risks, uh, you know, be they uh, climate risk on physical assets uh, or uh, supply chain disruption uh, and, uh, you know, the long sort of list of, uh, of challenges that you're, you're now forced to measure and report against. And so we're prioritizing the data sets that are in service of examining uh, the impact of financial materiality, as well as enabling our customers to, uh, to report against the various different disclosure frameworks that they're, uh, they're um, likely to have to, uh, to comply with. 
just to take a step back, I would say um, disclosures have been key- increased, uh, you know, quite dramatically. Uh, we now have the vast majority of uh, the S&P 500, for example, uh, providing disclosures. Uh, I would say um, that intensity is going to increase, uh, particularly as a number of governments in 2020 mandated disclosures, uh, for example, New Zealand, Canada, uh, the UK uh, mandating uh, TCFD. Uh, and so, um, you know, we definitely see the companies replacing a, a much higher uh, emphasis on this. I suppose maybe uh, a couple of things that I would say that the, um, the the early focus has tended to be uh, quite a bit around uh, risk, and and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're all grappling with the real world challenges uh, of climate risk, for example, and implications for uh, you know for companies' operations and and uh, you know and and impact to business. Uh, but I would also say that we've seen a number of companies who have seen um, positive benefits, uh, whether it's uh, cost reduction, for example, from lowering the number of data centers that they have and moving to the cloud, which, of course, reduces carbon emissions, but also uh, provides, uh, you know, real um, operational benefits uh, to the company as well. Uh, so there's a there's a good mix there. I think on the on the growth side, um, just uh, also stealing that uh, that data center example, we've seen a number of uh, large technology companies actually using. Uh, some of their the power they generate from data centers that they still have and actually repurposing and reselling some of that on the grid, for example. Um, you know, so there's there's uh, a lot of uh, of opportunity uh, in in interesting and unusual ways, I would say. Uh, the probably the next evolution here is uh, you know is going beyond the disclosures to uh, you know more uh, detailed and precise, ways of looking at uh, the financial impacts. Uh, you know, the first and second years of TCFT, you saw with a lot of companies, it was even, you know, even with our own at S&P, there was a, a, a you know, quite a, a maturing, if you like, in our in our second TCFT report over our first TCFT report and when we just announced our own uh, net zero commitments uh, last week. So we're gonna see more of that. And as we see that, I think we'll see more of the, the opportunity piece of it play out also. And finally, Last week's episode featured Danielle Boyer, one of the two young climate activists who were featured on our closing keynote conversation. What makes them different is how they are inspiring and equipping other people to share their voice. This week, we feature her fellow Brower Youth Award winner, Diego Ayrola Fernandez. In this clip, he speaks about his passion for inspiring confidence in youth activists, who he calls Earth Protectors. It was tough at first to just focus on environmental awareness, having a lot of problems here and a strong gender inequality, deep poverty and inequality in so many areas. But I think we soon realized that sustainability is about like those three pillars, um, society, environment and economics. So when we teach these kids how to fight for sustainability and how to become earth protectors, they are fighting for uh, equal opportunities for all, protecting the environment and protecting society. And working with these kids, um, with our communities, we have realized that there are always two kinds of kids. Um, as Daniel was saying, there are these kids that are so talented and like have this passion for STEAM or for music, uh, for public speaking. And so we want to help those kids that might lack a bit of the knowledge about climate justice and the climate change and what is happening and how to solve it and use their talents in favor of these solutions. And on the other hand, we have the kids that have this deep sense of care towards mother nature. 
and that have this consciousness and responsibility and amazing ideas, but they don't know how to communicate them, how to inspire more people, how to motivate people, because they are shy, just like I was when I was six years old. And so we also want to work with those kids so that they can enhance their projects and become the next change makers and join the protests that are already happening because the kids that are protesting, um, and I include myself, it requires a lot. You have to have the knowledge of what's happening and the confidence to go and fight for your future and for what you believe in. But we want every kid on the planet and every young voice to be heard and to be fighting on those protests or initiating their own campaigns or their own amazing work or joining amazing uh, communities and organizations just like the Steam Connection with Danielle, uh, become green speakers. But they have to have both. They have to be informed and they have to be confident. I always love hearing from the youth leaders. It's always so inspiring as it was last week at GreenBiz 21. Thanks for queuing those up, Heather. Uh, we uh, So much more we could have done. I know you waited through a lot of audio to and video to pick those clips. So I appreciate your curation of uh, what was a great, great week. Corporate investments in individual communities have traditionally been considered the realm of philanthropy or volunteer programs, but the era of stakeholder capitalism is shaking up those preconceptions. More sustainability professionals are now finding themselves at the center of those discussions and responsible for helping define the sorts of resources and programs that could help make communities more livable. Hint, it goes far beyond worrying about CO2 emissions or safe drinking water, although both of those environmental concerns are, of course, important. This evolving responsibility was the subject of a breakout session during GreenBiz 21. The conversation included Deborah Vernon, Senior Director of Corporate Responsibility for Tyson, and Hardbond Williams, Vice President of the AT&T Believes and Community Engagement for AT&T. Here to chat about some of the key takeaways is John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst of the GreenBiz Group, who moderated the discussion. John, thanks for dropping in to GreenBiz 350. Well, thanks for having me, Heather. It's always wonderful to have your insight. So let's start with a level set. What's driving the shift and how prevalent is it? I think one thing that's driving it is just this rise of ESG focus that we've seen and we covered quite a bit during our, our event. And the F in ESG, which I think is also part of our, our State of Green Business Report, there's a couple different sections on that. And I think more and more sustainability professionals are being asked to address the social issues in addition to environmental issues. And these are often things that have in the past, as you mentioned earlier, been left to philanthropy or CSR teams. But we're seeing sustainability executives looking at ESG more holistically, more systemically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is it, is it, well, is it prevalent? Like, like, do you see a lot of these programs? You say that people are looking at this systemically. Is, is it actually coming forth in action? I think it's emerging. Mm-hmm. I don't think you could say it is widespread right now, uh, but I do think people are, you know, companies are moving away from little league team sponsorship and 5K fun runs, which, which are great and they'll still happen. But um, looking at more, what, what is the emergent impact investments they can make? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So along those lines, what are some of the most impactful programs that you've seen? Well, as you mentioned, I had a couple of great panelists that are GreenBiz 21. And one that, uh, and, and I covered both of these in our state, state of Green yeah. Business Report as well. One is around the area of strategic philanthropy. And I think this AT&T Believes program is really interesting because it addresses philanthropic initiatives in a city by city basis. So it's not a uh, it's not a program where you just spread the same program across the world. It's really unique in each city that it operates. I think the the Chicago AT and T believes looks at 19 areas in south side of Chicago and where they can make an impact. In Los Angeles, it's a different program. In New York, it's a different program. And what I found really interesting is it models their their philosophy for business. It's a franchise type of model for mm. philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really unique in mm-hmm. the philanthropic world to sort of have that mm-hmm. model of, of franchising your, your philanthropy. Yeah. So, and how do they determine the focus to use in those cities? Is it, are they engaging with community groups there? Or how does, how does they figure that out? Right. It's completely bottom up, ground up. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. the local people engaging with the community to see what do they really need. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of corporate coming in and saying, we're here to give you money and to, to do a X program, they're really working with community organizations. And that's why in every city, the program is different. Yeah, I found that uh, Tyson program to be very interesting as well. Um, here they are in the middle of a lot of rural areas, and they decided to focus on education, at, at least as one part of it. Um, ESL, right, is, was was one focus. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the Tyson initiative? Yeah, so that's one where I'm more excited because this is not a philanthropic initiative. Mm. This is a mm-hmm. business initiative to have, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, as you said, factories, plants in uh, small towns and rural areas, and they can have up to 30 different um, languages spoken in one of those. And a lot of, a lot of their employees are recent immigrants um, from around the world. And so they started Upward Academy to focus on uh, English as a second language, financial literacy. Many of these people have been unbanked, don't understand how a bank even works. Um, Healthcare, so how to access proper healthcare, what's available to them. They've shown an ROI for this investment, like a 123% ROI in 2017, 137% ROI. Um, So it's a really cool program. And now they're going to even... um, uh, improve it or, or upgrade it, I guess, to where they're going to do technical training. So after you've gone through Upward Academy, they also will have a new initiative where they'll train um, employees on HVAC repair and, and equipment maintenance and those sorts of things. Whether they have a job for them or whether it helps them get a job in another company. So hmm. um, yeah, really exciting program. Yeah, that is a really fascinating program. And it makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm curious, what stands in the way of these sorts of initiatives or or progress on this in in general? Well, 
it's it's not what stands in the way of Tyson because they're doing it. But for other companies, I think that's what you're really saying. Why aren't there more initiatives like this? I think one of the big things standing in the way is metrics and, and measurement. Um, you know, if you look 10, 15 years ago at, at the environmental sustainability side, you know, scope one, scope two, scope three, we didn't know what that was, how to measure it, right? And you had organizations like WRI and EDF and help define it. And today, measuring environmental impact is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, we know how to do it. We know what to expect in reports. There really aren't good metrics for measuring social impact. I think they'll be developed. I think there's some really exciting programs going on that I wasn't allowed to talk about yet, um, but that I've been talking to a few companies about. But um, I think it's really how do we measure our impact? And once we can do that, then those programs, then you can take that to your leadership and say, this is how we can measure what we're doing and why it's good for us to do it. Mm-hmm. One last question for you. How should sustainability teams approach this opportunity? Well, as always, it's always about the business case. And so it's still got to be about a business case. But I remember a CFO that I was talking with at one of our Green Business Executive Network meetings. And I love recounting this because he got up and started talking about sustainability and how their program was working. And at some point, someone asked him, how do you justify these investments? And he goes, it's just numbers. You can make them say anything you want. And, uh, you know, (laughs) that's unusual to hear from a CFO. But Mm -hmm. I think you look at programs like uh, the the Rosie program at NYU, the return on sustainable sustainable investment, and they they give you ways in which to quantify what isn't normally quantified and put that into the business case. I think some people get tripped up thinking the business case is just uh, pure math, right? (laughs) You know, pluses and minuses and a sum at the bottom. But it's not. There are always assumptions. And so I think as people get better with those assumptions, you'll see business cases that support this. Great. Well, thanks for joining us, John. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks, Heather. You just heard from John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst of the GreenBiz Group. This week on GreenBiz.com, we ran an opinion piece headline, Joe Biden can be the president for a sustainable private sector by Lisa Wall, CEO of USSIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, and Aaron Kramer, the president and CEO of BSR. It calls for creating a White House Office of Sustainable Finance and Business to develop a national strategy for U.S. leadership in sustainable finance and business. Joining me now to talk about that is one of the co-authors, Lisa Wall. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Joel. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you here. First, tell me what led you and Aaron to write this piece. Well, USF had been working from last summer to create a set of policy recommendations for the incoming administration, which we were going to utilize, whether it was Trump version two or, or Joe Biden one. And um, when we launched them, uh, we have multiple recommendations in there. One of them is this office, this White House office. Aaron uh, immediately reached out to me and said he was interested. So we just started to have a conversation about it. 
And that's where the idea for this uh, opinion piece came from. And we uh, started working on that last year. There are so many organizations and initiatives bringing companies and the financial community together to accelerate the transition to a clean and just economy. Why another one? Um, I think this is very different. A lot of those, uh, uh, nearly all of those initiatives sit outside of government. Um, and, you know, so there's civil society, which is incredibly important and civil society often gets governments to do what they should do. And um, we, just, we just felt at USF that we have an interesting place where we sit in between investors who often are working with companies privately, but mostly publicly held. To, to drive their uh, practices forward and to invest in the companies that are doing things to the best, uh, you know, to a higher standard. So we, we both in a way work with investors and, you know, at a, at a, at a distance companies through our members. And, um, you know, we do feel that with the growth of sustainable investment, uh, the need to invest uh, through the federal government, through things like the thrift plan, uh, which is a retirement plan and other initiatives and sustainable funds. And the fact that the government both will create federal policy to change the way companies operate, new minimum wage laws, new leave laws and things like that. But there is also a place for the federal government to bring together actors who want to um, be moving forward what's now being called stakeholder capitalism more urgently and to act as a bully pulpit and to bring that together with the sustainable investment community, which has been doing that for years. And we just felt this was an interesting opportunity to move, to move that conversation and to move policy forward as well. We'll talk a little bit about how this impacts your world of sustainable investing. Well, for one thing, we don't spend, start every week with saying no to something and writing a letter of opposition. So this has been, this has been a dramatic sea change from um, the last four years. Uh, and certainly in the last year and a half of, of Donald Trump, there was a concerted effort to really um, roll back ESG, both with two poor rules at the Department of Labor, two really poor rules at the SEC, and just reams of uh, rollbacks of climate le- regulations and other important regulations that cross the environmental social spectrum uh, with which sustainable investors are very concerned. So that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is we have both opportunities to roll back uh, some of the poor initiatives from the Trump administration, but then move forward what we hope will be um, some great initiatives. One of our recommendations, for example, was to create an advisor, a senior level advisor on sustainable investment in the uh, chairperson's office at the SEC. Well, that's already happened. Now it happened through the acting director of the SEC, uh, the acting chair, but there is a full-time person in that office on uh, ESG and climate. It's crazy that it's taken till 2021 to have those words in anybody's title at the SEC, but it's also equally groundbreaking and incredibly important. And we would like to build on that across the federal government, for example. I'm sure that there are some in their, our hyper-partisan world let's say the Wall Street Journal editorial page, who would see this as a way to grant favors and taxpayer dollars to progressives' pet projects. What would you say to that? Uh, We have five uh, uh, proposals underneath the rubric of this office uh, to help uh, advance what we call a sustainable private sector. And I don't think any of them 
have to do with what you just mentioned. You know, that's just not in our proposals. We are interested if there's a conversation, for example, on the sustainable finance plans that are going on in different parts of the world um, in ensuring that the broadest scope of the financial community is brought in to have that conversation. Uh, we're not sure that conversation will be happening in the next several years, but it very much is an international conversation that is impacting the U.S. with or without us dealing with it on our own. So if President Biden were to wave his presidential pen on Monday morning to create a White House Office of Sustainable Finance and Business, what's the change you want to see in the world happen? Uh, what would it look like in a year from now? Well, I think in a year from now, we would see that multiple staff across the White House, off, uh, the White House which is multiple agencies and sub-agencies, uh, would have a knowledge of this, would know how to connect with sustainable investors and folks who are involved in sustainable companies and trying to move in that direction. Um, we would be moving more quickly on some of the policies that need to be changed across the government with the support of the White House. Um, we would be able to bring together actors who are, for example, in the stakeholder capitalism place, actually trying to change large publicly, uh, publicly held companies and use them as examples and best practices on how others can do this. I have often found in the work that I've done either in paid jobs or boards that I've been on, that the best way to move something forward is to have someone who's done it talk about it. It makes, uh, it makes people just less nervous to understand a colleague has done it and been successful. So those are three things right off the top of my head. Um, we'd also like to see a scan of the federal government. That last time it was done in 2005, it was called Report on the Federal Activities on Corporate Social Responsibility. The world has changed so much since then. And if you actually looked at the federal government, both from a procurement perspective, from a hiring perspective, and from the way that they engage both in the US and in their vast global reach to see how they were working on broad sustainability. And by that, I mean, good GENS. We think that could be a groundbreaking report as well. So we'd want to see that done in the next two years as well. Lots to do. And it sounds like this is an interesting proposal that uh, we'll be anxious to see how far it gets. Lisa Wall is CEO of USSIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, and co-author with Aaron Kramer of Joe Biden Can Be the President for a Sustainable Private Sector, now on greenbiz.com. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our seven free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.